Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first episode of uh, Society of Armenian Studies podcast. Today we have with us Professor George Burnutian, who is a senior professor of history at Iona College in New York, and he is the author of more than 28 books on Russian history, Caucasian history, and modern Armenian history. Uh, for today's topic, we would like to talk with Professor Burnutian about his recent book, Armenia and Imperial Decline from 1900 till 1914, The Province of Yerevan, a very timely book which kind of overlaps with the 100th anniversary of uh, the First Republic of Armenia. So, Professor Burnutian, can you just tell us briefly the background of the book or what are you trying to do in the book? How come how come you started writing this book, and which was published right 100 years after the First Republic was created? Well, the main reason for me publishing this, I mean, even going to look for information of this book, was when I was a student, yes, when I was a student at UCLA, of course, I worked with Richard Hovannis, and he was one of my mentors. I had an Iranian mentor and a Russian mentor in history. But when the first volume of The Republic came on, and Richard kept on talking in class, he talked about, of course, the first volume of The Republic of Armenia. And I'm reading here, it says that... Uh, there in the midst of lawlessness anguish, this is the, when they came to Yerevan, the Dashtag mm -hmm. leadership, they endeavored without the benefits of a pre-existing ruling apparatus or traditions to create the foundations of government. The central bureaus, chancellery, state buildings, arsenals, printing presses, railroad garages of Transcaucasia were left behind in Tiflis. Well, then I wondered, how could this republic, okay, these 12 people came from Tiflis and they came even late. They, when you look at their work, they didn't even want to come to Yerevan. They mm -hmm. thought they could manage a republic from the capital of a country, mm -hmm. Georgia, which had declared itself independent. Completely idiotic, in my opinion. But I'm not accusing the, the leadership of the Dashak. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had no other choice. But I wonder to know, how could this republic from the time of its existence all the way to December 20th, managed to survive mm -hmm. without, without any apparatus. I knew there must have been, because it was the Russian Empire. Russian Empire had 86 provinces. It was, yes, okay, at the beginning maybe it was weak, but after 1880s, the reforms of Alexander II and the reforms of Sergei Vite, mm -hmm. when you look at the people who made the railroads and the complete minor industrialization efforts that the Russians tried to make Russia industrialized, not they didn't succeed, of course, it didn't become England or Germany, but first steps were taken. Mm -hmm. The Trans-Siberian Railroad, the railroad from Tiflis to Kars, from Tiflis to Yerevan, from Yerevan to Julfa, to Iran, was all constructed. There must have been something. Luckily, it was pure luck. In St. Petersburg, when I gave a conference there a few years ago, I went to the archives, and I read Russian fluently. I read Russian yes. even better than I read Armenian. Unfortunately, yes. uh, I did not go to Armenian schools. I read Armenian, but I read it much slower than Russian. Russian I read just as fast as English. So there I found 
a whole set of almanacs mm -hmm. printed by the Administration Statistical Bureau of the Yerevan province mm. from 1902 all the way to 1914. There were big books, some of them three to 500 pages. In there, I found that it wasn't at all what many people believe. It wasn't the fault. I'm not criticizing Richard. At that time, nobody knew. It was a common thing that Yerevan was backward. Yes, compared to Baku, it was backward. Yes. Compared to Tbilisi, it was backward. But to call it a complete bare wasteland is not true. I found out I was a full administration, especially from 1900 onwards, actually from 1897, when the first Russian, all Russian census was conducted, there were courts, prisons, veterinary hospitals, a huge a main hospital, vaccinations, prisons, judges, I mean, you name it, printing presses, newspapers, a large number of factories, mostly in Yerevan and Alexandropol. Mm -hmm. I also found out that only 60% of the population of Yerevan province was Armenian. 40%, or at least 38%, was what they call Tatar and Kurds. Yes. But when you look at that, yes, and it was the only province in the entire Russian Empire that had an Armenian majority. So it functioned very well. The banks were there, government loan banks. I found the name of the 1,295 villages which that's the bulk of the book if you get the book yes. the first hundred pages is basically what i just told you and i found that the armenians were either leading or the assistants of all these offices so armenians were there armenians were the only ones who were drafted yes. muslims were not drafted they paid the money not to be drafted so armenians had soldiers who knew how to fight mm -hmm. all of this made a big difference later on the armenian soldiers did not come from Tiflis to fight the wars. Manukian, Aram Manukian fought with local soldiers yes. long before the other guys came in. Again, nothing against the guys who came from Tiflis. They tried their best. I'm not trying to downplay the Armenian Republic or blame them by, you know, they made mistakes, everybody made mistakes. Hmm. But to call it, I found out the 1,295 villages, seven districts, three of the districts were the majority Azerbaijanis. Yes. And it's the same three districts that today are part of Azerbaijan. Oh. Nakhchivan, Sharur, the part of Sharur, yes. and of course Surmalu, which Mount Ararat, that went to Turkey. So one of those dis districts which had a Muslim majority, mostly Kurds in case of Surmalu, went to Turkey. The other two ended up with Azerbaijan. Not that I'm very happy with this. Nobody is. Yes. But the majority districts were the ones that the Armenians were, were the ones that the hospitals were, the jails were, the factories were, the Armenians were in charge. And it functioned amazingly. When you look, I even have the exports and imports of this thing to Iran, to Georgia, to Russia. I mean, I can't go on forever because this is huge. Yes. So, Basically, what I try to do is to show people that the foundation of the Armenian Republic, at least the rough foundation, was already there. The poor Armenian Republic in less than 1,000 days, what could they do? 
And mm. when the Soviets came, many of these people ended up working for the Soviet administration. And in my opinion, they even helped start Soviet Armenia. I hope that explains it. That, that's very interesting. I mean, you provide very strong examples and evidence that there was a functioning administration in the province of Yerevan. But my question is, how do you explain the fact that so far historians, mostly Western historians, have neglected this aspect of the history of the Republic? Why do you think they always portray Yerevan as a backwater and try to uh, kind of describe the history of the First Republic as a, as a as a tabula rasa history, starting from zero, starting from scratch. How, well, how did this historiography... How did they this... made the two reasons. One reason, of course, is the Western historians, the material they had until the fall of the Soviet Union, when they mm -hmm. finally managed to go to Armenian archives, because Richard was not allowed to go to the Armenian archives when he was writing this book. I yes. was his student. He always complained that he couldn't go to Armenia. So his, everything he has is based on the Dashnak Tutun archives which were taken to Boston, yeah. which is fine, nothing against that. So obviously they are showing what they want to show, that they were responsible for the Republic. Yes, they were. But the main reason is not being able to read Russian, except for Ronald Sunni, yeah. who wrote, by the way, the foreword to this book. Mm -hmm. He was very impressed. And usually he does not write forward, but he wrote a foreword for this book. Except for Ron Sunni, who did not deal with this period, no one in the West that I know of, and of course Nina Garsoyan, who knows Russian very well, but Nina Garsoyan was interested in ancient and medieval history. Yes, yes. She never touched modern history. Of all the ones that I know in the United States, I don't know about Europe, but in the United States, none of the, even today, None of the professors, none of the shareholders know Russian. And if you don't know Russian, you cannot find this documentation because the Yerevan province was part of the Russian Empire. All the yes. documents are in Russian. The only thing that's written in Armenian in this period are documents of the Armenian church. Oh. Okay, yes. Armenian church documents are written in Armenian, but that's only church history and church relations, uh, the problems the church had with different villages, mm -hmm. etc. All the other documents, I could even say almost 99%, are in Russian. The system, the administration was Russian. The chief of Yerevan province was a Russian. The chief, the head, was a Russian. Tizengausen, mm -hmm. his assistant was Russian. The head of police was Russian. The assistant was Armenian. The mayor of Yerevan was Armenian. The mayor of Alexandropol was Armenian. But the post office, when you look at the stamps of the post office, it says Yerevan in Russian, not in Armenian. And so even the letters, everything was mm -hmm. in Russian. So when you can't read Russian, and of course these were very difficult to find, even today, uh, this, this almanacs and other information, Okay, there's only one, one copy of one of the years in Yerevan. The rest are only in St. Petersburg. No. That's, in my opinion, the reason. Also, it was, I don't know, maybe Armenians, I can't tell why. I mm. have a feeling that it was, maybe they felt that Russian rule was not important, which is also wrong. 
because without the Russian rule, there would have been no... Armenia was founded after 900 years. The province of Armenian province, Armianskaya Oblast, Haikagan Marza, was established by Paskevich after the taking of Turkmenchai, after the taking the mm -hmm. land from Iran. Yes. They created from Yerevan and Nakhchivan Khanate the Armenian Mars, Haikagan Mars. Yes, it was not the best Mars. Yes, the Muslims were a majority for a while, but slowly, between 50, 60, 70 years, the Armenians immigrated from other places and they established this Armenian Mars, which later became the Yerevan province. And it's the same province, minus Nakhchivan yes. and Surmalu Ararat, with the addition of Zangezur and Lori, the Kazakh Lori area, is the present-day Armenian Republic. So uh, I don't know why they are not looking at this. Hmm. I really don't know. So can we talk about two different kinds of historiography, or maybe three? One is Western, mostly based on Armenian sources. The other is probably Soviet historiography that I'm assuming portrays a very different picture of this period. And maybe one Iranian historiography that has some nostalgic elements to it, because this was also a region that was controlled by Iran until the early 19th century. So can we talk about three distinct historiographies in this case? Very good question. Excellent question. The Iranian historiography, and I'm working on a present book now. It's going to be a thousand pages in wow. two volumes. <laughs> the Russo-Iranian Wars based only on archival sources. Mm -hmm. Not the stuff that we have, which is not very, I mean, just most of his tale. Real documentary sources which we have found, both in Iran, in Yerevan, in Russia, etc., etc. The Iranians, after 1828, basically abandoned this area. They don't after 1828. There is some nostalgic things of our pastings, but serious scholarship after 1828 on the Caucasus is not done. No. The Iranians were not interested at all, and I've checked almost everything. There isn't any. Iranian had only one, had two council, three council generals: one in Tiflis, one in Yerevan. Mm -hmm. It's the only place that they had, and one in Baku. Iranians' only interest in the Caucasus has to do with trade via Baku, yeah. because from Enzeli, Baku trade to Astrakhan, Yerevan trade too, but not as much as Baku. Yeah. But nothing nostalgic, nothing nationalistic about what happened. As far as Soviet historians, they blame everything good happened in Armenia after Soviet rule. The Republic obviously was bad. Dashnaks, they were horrible, they were traitors, they made mistakes, ba, 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 ba. and the Tsarist government was a colonialist power mm -hmm. that used the entire South Caucasus as a colony. And I have documents up to here to show you. So there isn't, Soviets didn't do anything on that. Yeah. West hasn't done anything. Western Armenia, you're absolutely right. For Western Armenia, we have Armenian sources and we must have a large number of Turkish documents mm -hmm. in the Turkish archives. I can't read Ottoman Turkish. I can read part of it because it's Persian. I read Persian as fast as I read English. So yes. the Persian words in the Ottoman documents, which is 60%, mm -hmm. I can understand. But I really wish somebody would go 
to the Ottoman uh, Turkish archives, and there maybe they will be more open if we explain that it has nothing to do with the genocide. We just want to know how, what are the documents of the different pashas. There was a pasha in Achaltzich, in mm -hmm. Kars, in Erzurum. They had local administrators. They had local taxations. Those records must be there. Mm -hmm. Ottoman Empire was not like Iran. Iran was very badly organized. They had no archives at that time. They had no administration that kept this kind of records. Yeah. In fact, my books on Garabakh, Shirvan, Shemakhin, Nakhchivan, Yerevan prove that it's only the, when the Russians came, they had the first census to see what villages were paying which taxes here yes. too. Yes. Which villages were paying which taxes, which villages were Armenian, which were Kurdish, blah, 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 what taxes they paid, etc., etc. So the Ottoman Empire was much better organized. It would be interesting to see the yeah. economy and the socio-economic, so, socio forget about the politics, long before the Armenian political parties arrived in 1880s. Yes. Between 19, from 1800 to 1880s, how did the Armenian, this Armenian vilayats, mm -hmm. the Armenian, uh, I call them Armenian vilayats because that's what we call them, but yes. they were not really the majority except in clusters, but the places where the Armenians lived. What was, if we can find something like this, then we have a complete picture. Because what we have up there is, as you very well know, oh, poor Armenian, I'm not saying it's not true. Armenian villages were harassed by Turks and Kurds. Mm -hmm. They were paying taxes. Their girls were stolen, etc., etc. They reached a point up to here where they started the political parties. Correct. But can we tell us what was happening there exactly instead of this general yes that is true this is my worry i'm not be careful i am not trying to say that we armenians have made a big fuss for nothing no no there was mm -hmm. a lot of harassment there was truth all of that is accurate okay even in the tsarist period in the early period armenians in the in the armenian province up to 1840 were complaining that all the administration had remained in persian hands that the Persian Khans, uh, the Begs, etc., were continuing to fleece the Armenians. This is 12 years after the Russians had taken over. Yeah. So there were complaints. But at least we have that. Mm -hmm. We have that entire two volumes, which one day I may translate, of 1800 to 1850s, the entire internal documents of the Russian administrators, two huge volumes. Mm of the entire Caucasus and the complaints of the local people about the Russian administration treating them as a colony. Complaint, complaints sent to the Ottoman state or? No, no. That was, that was my next question. Unfortunately, these two volumes again are in Russian. But there must be something in the Ottoman. There must be in the... Because these pashas were appointed by the government. They collect the taxes. They had troops. They had to pay the troops. I mean... There was a yes. huge, Ottoman Empire was not like Iran. It was a great administration. They had embassies. Russia had an embassy. They had ambassadors and envoys. Iran had nothing. Mm. So these people must have kept something. Okay. So, Professor Burnutian, you mentioned that the, the administration was there. It was functioning, and it was a very important kind of stepping stone into the First Republic. 
But why do you stop in 1914? Why is the title? Why does the title stop in 1914 and not all the way to let's say 1917 or 1918? I should have. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. these booklets, these almanacs, these yearbooks stop in 1914. Oh. The last yearbook is 1914, right before the war breaks. Because once the war breaks, there was no more. And there was administration, but they did not have time to create another year mm -hmm. because the war was on two fronts, as you know, the European front and the Caucasian yes. front. Yes. And immediately they went from Alexandropol towards Kars. That was the war. Once the war began, even the famous Kafkaski um, Kalendar, which the Russians printed for all the Caucasus, mm -hmm. stops in 1915. Okay. The last issue is 1915. After that, the administration is much more worried about the war, how to get the troops, how to bring the food, the ammunition, etc., to the front. This kind of things were no longer. I see. So it's a matter of it's a sources. Good point. Sources. Maybe maybe we can use this opportunity to talk more about the Russian sources because we don't have a lot of knowledge about the let's about the imperial Russian sources, and you make a lot of use in, in this book. So can you tell us a bit how the Russian Russian administration worked, how they created these sources, these almanacs, and how you use them to actually come up with this, with this picture of the province of Yerevan? The Rus these almanacs were not only in Yerevan. Mm -hmm. There is one for Kars, which was the Russian which was a Russian province, Uh, which later Armenian Republic occupied and then were kicked out, unfortunately, by the Turks, they had to flee. One, there is one which I'm going to work on, I found it, on the Elizabeth Pole. Yes. Elizabeth Pole, which is Ganja, Karabakh, mm -hmm. Shushi. That I'm interested because to see what was happening in Karabakh during this time. Yes. Because that was a separate administration, Russian again. There is one for Stavropol, there is one for Siberia, so there's quite a few of them. The Russian administration, after the 1897 general census of all the 86 provinces, mm -hmm. the government specifically ordered that yeah. each province start a statistical committee. Some did it early, some never did it, some did it late. The job of the statistical committees was to gather all the social and economic information of that province, yes. anything that was happening, judicial, including fires, crime, how many people were murdered in what year, mm -hmm. what was the crime, were they men or women, how many of them were Christian, how many were upper class gentry, how many were lower class. In this book, The gentry, yes. if they had committed the crime, <laughs> were not mentioned. All the criminals are lower classes. Many of them were Muslim. Okay, What kind of crime? Rape, murder, how many arsons, how many fires were there? I mean, they really wanted to know. Finally, I think the Russian Empire in Petersburg woke up. Yes realize they are 100 years behind Europe, who has already all these things. Napoleon already had all sorts of things long before, all right? A yeah. hundred years before, Napoleon had made all sorts of things in their schools, 
mandatory education, etc. They began teaching geography. They began teaching all sorts of things, trying to catch up with Europe. But in order to do that, they really had to have a complete apparatus of information. And these booklets were the caucuses were all printed and sent to Tiflis, because Tiflis was the headquarters of the yes. administration of the entire caucuses. Part of it went to St. Petersburg. Did the St. Petersburg officials look at them and send directions to Tiflis? That I don't know. I Why? Because somebody has to go to Tiflis and check the imperial records from 1900 to, as you said even, to 1917, what were the orders coming from St. Petersburg to the headquarters of the Caucasus about each one of these things that I have here? Yeah. That, unfortunately, is the next step. Are there, are there any military archives you used in, for this book? Because for this book, no. We know that in 1918 the, there were strong continuities between the Russian military and the newly emerging Armenian army, which had generals that was who were trained in the Russian army. So there You're absolutely right. In 1918 to 1919 even, the government was hoping that the Denikin forces will win and something would happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I have not done that because this unfortunately stops in 1914. Yes. But I have used Russian military archives for the new book of the Russo-Iranian wars from 1803 to 1828, I which, as I said, is going to be a thousand pages. Uh, that is almost daily. I can even tell you the Russian units, how many men in each unit that fought in this front, that front. Mm -hmm. And one of the articles is in the Journal of Iranian Studies, chapter three of this book, in a condensed form, was published in the Journal of Iranian Studies in 2017, Volume 1. If you can get that, you will see the detail. I mean, people wrote me immediately saying, we didn't even realize the detail you have, because in the Iranian sources, the capture of Ganja, or Elizabeth Bull, is really one small paragraph. Yes. And I have 30 pages of the daily correspondence and the movement of troops and the maps, where did the Russians come from, how did they siege it, but all of that is from the Russian sources. The Iranian sources have nothing, except that one paragraph. Interesting. Unfortunately, I stopped in 1914. Again, not because it, it was done, because I couldn't find anything else for the Yerevan province mm -hmm. after 1914. But even with that, you mentioned a lot of names and uh, Armenians who were officials in the administration. They were assistants. They were yes. nurses, doctors, and they were based in Yerevan. So I was really interested to ask if there were any clashes in July of 1918 where the, when the actual leadership who was based in Tiflis until then and were mostly uh, Dashnak members, ARF members, they came to Yerevan. Were there any clashes between the new coming leadership and the people who were actually based in Yerevan? Well, that's Richard's book. Richard, Richard is the one that talks about, but he doesn't talk about major clashes. Mm -hmm. he, he talks about some res resentment, but nothing more. And I have said here, there must have been resentment. Again, since I stopped in 1914, you see, my problem is I had to limit myself 
not because I was afraid to hurt anybody's feeling, but because I didn't have any sources on the Yerevan province, because after 1917, it no longer was the Yerevan province. It became the Republic. Yes. There must have been clashes. But the clashes could not have been that big, because the 12 people that, well, even Richard says that Aram Manukyan was unhappy when the Dashnak Tichun leaders made the treaty. Mm -hmm. When they went and made the treaty surrendering all that part of Yerevan. When you read Richard, he says Manukyan was extremely unhappy. They said they had no right to make that deal. He was in the verge of throwing the Turks out of Alexandropol because what the leadership gave away was the entire railroad line from Alexandropol yes. all the way to the mm -hmm. Persian border. The lifeline of Armenia, which was the railroad, was occupied by the Turks. And they surrendered. They surrendered, according to Richard, because they had no other choices. They were dying and they couldn't fight. Maybe it's possible. Mm -hmm. I have not done the research on the Armenian Republic or any so Russian sources or local sources on the Armenian Republic, except what Richard has. According to Richard's book, which is the definitive four volumes of the Armenian Republic in English, yes. translated from Varatsyan's Hayastani Harapetuchuna and the archives, so... I trust that what he says, although the more I read these four volumes, now again, I don't want to, the more I read these four volumes, it, and a few of my friends also say when you read these four volumes, it looks like you need buckets to shed tears. Oh, poor Armenians, look what's happening to them. Everybody is against them. Every time they want to do something, people cheat them, people... Of course they cheat them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was obvious from the very beginning when the Bolsheviks published the Treaty of uh, Sykes-Picot yes. Agreement, they published it right away after they took over, that France was going to take Kilikia. This idea of the Nubar Pasha coming to Paris demanding Kilikia, when Kilikia was already given to the French, mm -hmm. okay, relying on the British and the French, constantly saying, relied on Wilson, relied on and poor Armenians. They relied, but they were backstabbed. Well, you know what? Maybe they shouldn't have relied. This is my point. You know, uh, when you read this fun, it looks like nowadays, as I'm getting older, I'm trying to be more objective. Yes, we got a raw deal, but the entire history of the Armenian Republic, instead of mentioning the mistakes, and I'm going to talk about the mistakes in Mesa conference in November, that's my lecture, yes. short, 20 minutes, just go over the mistakes that the Armenian Republic committed from 1918 to 1920, and the international scene. Nobody talks about them. We don't want to talk about them. And it's, it's, hundred years has passed. What are we afraid of? They did a heroic job. They did the best they could. But is it not one error in four volumes, major error that could have been make it easier? Could they have gone to this communists earlier? Could they make a deal like Azerbaijan did? Look mm -hmm. what Azerbaijan gained. They gained everything, including Shamshadil, Kazakh, a part of Georgia, Zakatal, they gained, I mean, mm -hmm. they became huge. 
they collaborated very early on. I found a letter from Mikoyan to mm -hmm. Lenin, 1919 May, from Baku. Mm -hmm. Mikoyan writes, and Mikoyan is Armenian, of course, he's a yes. communist Armenian. Yes. He writes that the government in Yerevan has, has put its reliance on foreigners, on Denikin and on England and France. Mm -hmm. That's all they have put their reliance. They don't even want to talk their reliance, and therefore, since they have put their reliance on that and they have no spirit of working with us, we might as well basically... So what Migoyan was suggesting was that Armenians should co uh, collaborate or work with the communists. In, in Either collaborate or work or at least have a little bit of socialist spirit. Well, it's not the part of Armenians. Baku was easy because Baku was full of workers. Yes. Armenians, Jews, and Russians were in charge of, mm -hmm. as you know, oil fields, etc. The engineers, etc., were foreigners. The Azeris were all dirty workers. Yes. So it was very easy to unionize them into a socialist spirit. Armenian villages, yes, could have been done. But Armenians in Georgia and in Yerevan, the government, were upper middle class educated people. Mm -hmm. They were the bourgeoisie, and <laughs> Mikoyan calls them bourgeois. Mm -hmm. They are all bourgeois, they are bourgeoisie, they are not going to go, they have no socialist spirit. He uses the word spirit. Hokin, yes. socialist Hoki Chunensera. You know, <laughs> it's a very, <laughs> it's stupid, I know, but from the Moscow point of view. That was unacceptable. Armenia was not something they cared for. And the only reason, the only reason Armenia got the railroad back, the railroad, and Russia agreed to give up Ararat and Surmalu was because Russia maintained Batum, the only port for Georgia, which the railroad goes from Tiflis cars and from Tiflis to Batum. For Batum, which the Turks had occupied, yeah. for getting Batum back, they gave Ararat and Iqdir to the Turks to have a common border with Nakhchivan, mm -hmm. so they could. They didn't know that Zangezur is going to be Armenian. Yes. Had Zangezur, had General Andranik not gone to Zangezur, and had Zangezur remained part of Elizabeth Pol, Azerbaijan next to to Nakhchivan, mm -hmm. Armenia would have been finished, landlocked, nothing. Armies could have marched as it is today. There are two bridges. I've seen them, I have mapped them from Iqdir, from Turkey, all the way to Nakhchivan. Two mm -hmm. bridges are going. Anytime the Turks want to, they can send things to Nakhchivan. From there, they can fly them to Baku. And in the 1921-1920 Carson-Moscow Treaty mm -hmm. with Turkey, it is specifically said that Nakhchivan will always belong to Azerbaijan and no other power, and Turkey can intervene yes. for Nakhchivan. So these are very little... <laughs> so Professor Brununga, now that you mentioned the early Soviet period, I think one last question for, for this podcast would be, so you talked about a lot of the continuities between the the imperial uh, period, the independence period, and then the early Soviet period. 
But were there any continuities, not in terms of the administration, but in terms of the personnel? Because we know that in 1920, a lot of ARF leaders, Dashnak Shun leaders, left Armenia. They yes. went to Iran and like, yes. were government in exile. But I'm, I'm assuming there were a lot of people who stayed, uh, who stayed behind and were part of the Soviet administration. Can this you talk about what, that? Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. This is what I was thinking. And this is when I was hoping that one day, if my age permits and my other work, because I have two other volumes that I'm working on. One is the Elizabeth Paul, one is the wars. I don't think I'll live long enough. But if I do, one day I would like, or somebody, now that we're doing this, some young Armenian scholars, since you are putting this on the web, young Armenian scholars who can read a little bit Russian, but Armenian especially, should now go, the archives are there. I have spoken to the head of the archives, Dr. Amatuni. Mm -hmm. He was recently in Los Angeles with mm -hmm. us for the 100th anniversary. Yeah. We each gave, I talked about this, he talked about the archives. All right? Yeah. So, he says they're all there to go and look the names of, for example, the chief doctor, administrator, prison uh, chief, who are they? Because I have their names here. Mm -hmm. They couldn't have changed that much in a matter of three, four years. Yes, yes. All right? There should be there. There have to be records. It would be very interesting to see what kind of, a, what happened to the jail, to the insane asylum, to the, to the vets, veterinary clinics. They must, they are there. They couldn't have been destroyed because those are all in Yerevan and Alexandropol, which was not taken. I mean, that part, most of Armenians were safe. Mm -hmm. A small part was detached, but the rest remained. Let's see what was happening. Who was in charge of the printing press? There must have been a government printing press. The machines were there. You know, it's very interesting to see. Maybe one of the younger people now will continue this work and go to Yerevan, now the conditions exist. And I think we should now, as Society of Armenian Studies and other Armenian organizations, should start collecting scholarship money, research money, funds to fund. Going to Armenia is not expensive. Yes. They can rent a room there in a house. They don't have to go to a hotel. Yes. Rent a room. We can give them introductions, official introductions from the university to the archives. Amaduni will allow them if he sees official thing. They can go and start looking at this thing. They may go first for a few days or one week to do preliminary mm -hmm. examination, what's available, come back, apply for a grant. You're talking about, okay, five to $10,000. That's not a lot of money. And for a young scholar, to be able to find this kind of information and publish a monograph, because we're all dying. Yes. Richard is retired, Sunni is going, I mean, there's not many of us left of the older group. Okay, this younger group, we have all these chairs, by the way, that's another headache. Half of our chairs, as you know, have been taken away and they're not doing anything. They've taken our money, but they're not, but that's another story. So... <laughs> We should really do this for the young people. And otherwise, the field is dead. It's mm -hmm. not the dead is because there is no money in it. Jobs are very few, so you really have to love it. And if you don't love it, well, at least let's help some of these young people. 
I mean, what are you doing now? You are there doing, I presume you are doing some kind of a research. Yes. You're not yes, there to yes, eat yes. the food and drink the wine. You could do that here. Yes. I mean, so obviously, people like you who are young and are interested because your questions demonstrate to me that your brain is working very well. So I really think we should start giving money, collecting money, giving money to people to start researching. Okay, once again, thank you, Professor George Bonutian, for, for giving your time and talking about your recent book, Armenia and Imperial Decline, the Yerevan province from 1900 to 1914, which was recently published by Rutledge. So thank you again. You are very welcome. It was a pleasure.